By his side is a tremendous place for us to be as our, we work our way through chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. And, uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles there, if you're not already there from before. We said uh, the last time we were together that there's some tall weeds to work through here in God's Word. And, and, and certainly I would call this uh, the meat of God's Word. It's not for those of you that have known Jesus just for a few days or weeks. Uh, this is probably going to be a little bit harder for you to comprehend. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Um, but uh, we'll trust God to help us. And so if you have your Bibles on your device um, or paper form, I can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I think I learned a new cell phone maneuver. I've been observing. A few weeks ago, I shared with you a few clever moves that people make to text or use social media during services as I preached, and you think I miss certain things, don't you? I think I've discovered the oops, I dropped my phone, I need to check a message routine. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. So, I mean, if you drop your phone, pick it up, but just always know I think I'm gonna be thinking you're texting somebody. <laughs> Anyways, for those of you who are younger, we'll do everything we can to be distracted to God's word uh, on your device, all right? And I assure you that those who want to hear from you or need to hear from you can wait until 1130. Amen. All right? Right now, let's hear from God and uh, ask his blessing on, our, on his word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to preach your word now. Help us. We desperately need help from heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Ron, for reading this text uh, for us earlier. And again, if you're a guest and uh, you're wanting to know how we handle God's word at Grace Church, we kind of try to do so in the morning services book by book. And uh, this is the book for 2019 uh, that we're working through, the book of Ecclesiastes, this wisdom literature. The author is Solomon. We're into chapter 4. Having concluded uh, the latter part of chapter 3, the last time we were together, and here Solomon continues his examination of the apparent anomalies and contradictions that confront our lives every day. Walter Kaiser, in his book on Ecclesiastes, takes the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and divides uh, these verses this way. He says in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we need to understand there is unrighteousness in the halls of justice. That's a reality that's been the case ever since the fall of man into sin. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, that we concluded last week, that men and beasts can be alike in a number of ways. This morning we'll learn that men can be oppressed, men can be rivalrous, Men can be isolated and popularity is temporary. He says here in verses 1 to 3 that men are oppressed. We all are in some degree. We'll study that. Verses 4 to 6, men love competition. Men love to be rivalrous. Verses 7 to 12, and often men have isolated themselves. Possibly this isolation has come from 
tiring of being oppressed or tiring of a rivalry. We really don't know if this is an independent thought or a connected thought here. Different authors um, have varying opinions, but regardless, I would say both would be appropriate here. And finally, uh, popularity is fleeting. It's temporary. In verses 13 to 16. I would like to take those verses and outline them this way if you like taking notes or if you remember structure well. We long for comfort, verses 1 through 3. We long for comfort, but oppression reigns. We long for comfort, but it seems oppression reigns. Verses 4 to 6, we long for rest, but competition saturates. We long for rest, but competition saturates. We do need companionship, thirdly. We do need companionship, but isolation consumes some of us. We need companionship, but isolation consumes some of us. And finally, we long for permanence, and yet duration exists. There's no duration. We long for permanence, but limited to no duration exists. Verses 13 to 16. We're going to take the next couple weeks to work through the whole chapter together. So we'll begin back, verses 1 through 3, where we've realized that we have a, long, a longing for comfort, but oppression reigns. Aiken, A-K-I-N, in his commentary says, Power always seems to be on the side of the oppressor. Historically, domestically, corporately, politically, educationally, ecclesiastically, church, socially, and vocationally. Stories abound and continue to abound regarding abuse and oppression in every one of these environments. The plain truth is, power often does corrupt in any environment. The oppressor who holds the power, even has the ability to compel someone to corrupt their own lives in the oppressor's favor. Darkness can be multi-generational in any one of those environments we listed a minute ago. Has anyone in history in the name of religion ever violated a person or a child? Last week, we briefly discussed men sometimes and a few women can do abominable acts in the home upon each other, their own children. But we were reminded that the ink in God's quill never runs dry when keeping a divine omniscient record for judgment purposes.
Have there ever been any contracts in the business world unfairly rewarded to certain businessmen for participating in an under-the-table deal? Remember the guy in Utah that takes the life of his wife and two little girls for his own personal gain and protection and puts them in a reservoir of oil where he works? Remember that? For what reason? Excuse me, Colorado. Do you remember recently the foolish and most unfortunate decision of a 21-year-old Utah student who gets a lift ride at 1.30 a.m. after calling her mom that she's arrived safely at the Salt Lake City Airport, arriving back from her grandmother's funeral, and she takes this ride in the middle of the night to a park to be picked up by someone apparently she knew? only to be treated by a beast like a beast who viciously takes her life. And they find her bludgeoned, having been thrown into a desert gorge, buried in a shallow grave. Do you remember recently the demonic cheering in state houses in New York, in Virginia, in Illinois, of the souls of state officials, polished, educated, elected people, demonically cheering as they passed late-term pregnancy, aggravated, premeditated murder policy. In every one of these situations, the individual or individuals have power, and that power, because they're fallen, can corrupt to the most grievous Degree. The darkest of the dark. And as we've also said, that even in church environments, has a priest, a pastor, a deacon, a teacher ever used their position to corrupt a member or a child? Darker yet. The blue green flames of hell are ready to take on the challenge of the oppressor who enters there unredeemed. Have police, local law enforcement, ever been paid off to look the other way? Has money and influence from the dark side ever adversely influenced the leadership of a municipality, a large city? Let's not forget chapter 3 and verse 15 again as we work through these tall weeds. For God seeks what has passed by. He omnisciently remembers. And judgment will fall. And that quickly. I want us to notice here three simple truths about the nature of an oppressor. As Ron read earlier. They often work alone on the vulnerable that they can get alone. They love their autonomous ability to enact evil, to use their power on a, on a more vulnerable, weaker individual. They always make sure that their power is immensely greater than that of their victims. 
Their desire is to terrorize the victim into solitary living themselves. If you remember what Ron read, both the oppressor and the afflicted both live life alone. It's interesting. The oppressor enjoys it. To live in obscurity as he lives among the public or she is an innocent individual and yet the afflicted is forced into obscurity and terrorized into obscurity and yet they are compelled to still live life among people they're alone both are extremely alone even though they're around many people. Could you ever hear an oppressor saying, if you say anything about this then? I said there's probably 30 or more of you that I know of in this room that were sexually abused as a child or as a teen. And your oppressors, what do they say? If you ever tell your dad or you ever tell your mom or if you ever tell pastor, then some of your family members' lives were threatened. What was Job's response to oppression? Now, this was oppression that was afflicted upon him by Satan himself. But God knew that the grace that he had supplied Job was far more powerful than the oppression and the affliction that Satan could inflict upon Job. But what does Job say in chapter 3, verses 3 through 10 of his wisdom to us? He got to the point where it got so bad that non-existence is preferred to existence. And what does Solomon say here that was read for us earlier? Verse 3, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Have you ever been to that point in your life? Not just because you've been oppressed, but because you're tired of being eyewitnesses to oppression? Regardless of its degree of wickedness, it's tough, isn't it? It's a, it's a heavy load to bear. Even in our country, where it seems... There's the least amount of oppression compared to any other country on our globe. What's good therapy for the Christian heart as oppressed people? Uh, I would like to remind you of Psalm 73, verses 16 and following. I'll read those for you. And I hope your heart's encouraged. When I pondered to understand this, the psalmist writes, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. It's okay, my friends, to understand the judgment and justice of God, and that will be thorough, and it is coming quickly. And it is okay to let vengeance be God's. And it is okay to take solace and comfort there. 
The activity of the oppressor is short-lived. They feel they dominate and will forever be despots of individuals or groups of people's lives. But three score and ten, my friends, that's it. Seventy years old, and they face, remember, the same end as a beast. They're going to breathe their last. And God says what? <laughs> it's okay to consider their end. We pray for their souls. But apart from Christ, we can perceive their end. He goes on to say in verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places, even though they seem so sure and so clear, concise, and compelling in what they're doing, the psalmist says, ah, they're on a slippery slope. They're not as secure as they sound or as they look. He says, you're going to cast them down to destruction, verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 4? May I read that for you? Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Did you catch that, friends? We may have all this oppression upon us, but whose power is greater than the power of the oppressor. The power of a transformed life. The power of the Lord Jesus. Preaching, proclaiming, really screaming through our lives, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen. You might be able to temporarily afflict me, but I know the judge of all the earth who will ultimately do right. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh, so death may work in us, but because of Christ, life works also. eternal life. Therefore, great conclusion, <laughs> profound conclusion, therefore, we do not lose heart. And the grammar here is very similar to other passages that Luke wrote in Luke 18. Men ought always to pray so they don't lose heart or don't give up. The grammar here is very particular, and it simply means not giving up and quitting, but it's giving up and quitting and giving way to temptation. Because we're fallen, afflicted people often have the tendency to be depressed, walk away from God, and then think and say and do sinful things. 
Even modern sociologists and psychologists tell us there's a reason why there's second, third, fourth generation child abusers. It is a very certain, ugly reality of our human existence. Sometimes when we're afflicted, depending how we handle it, can actually transform us into an oppressor to some degree. But Paul says here, don't lose heart. Because Christ and his transforming grace that miraculously changed you is capable to save you, that same grace is capable to sustain you and to grow you into Christ-likeness. Don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And that, that phrase has always challenged me since I've been able to read. How in the world could Paul call light affliction being crushed, perplexed, despairing, persecuted, struck down, destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Folks, those aren't figurative phrases. Those are literal. How in the world could he call that light affliction? It's only light when you view it in the face of eternity. Because there is a much heavier weight of glorious things yet to come. Those who are the children of God who persevere through oppression, through oppression this way. He goes on to say, for the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Finger over with John chapter 16, if you will, very quickly this morning. John chapter 16 we're going through several layers here, if you will. Oppression and its consequences are cold realities to us, and we need to be warmed by some spiritual blankets here as we work our way through these, these tall weeds. And our fourth gospel writer details for us here another divine reason why our hearts can be and should be encouraged as we look together here at verse number five. Jesus is announcing his departure, but he says someone else is going to come who's just like me. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, this is the Holy Spirit, for those of you who just have come to know Jesus, the Helper, the Advocate, your translation might say, is the Holy Spirit. If I don't go, he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. 
And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer will see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Holy Spirit is doing these things. Satan has already been defeated. And the Holy Spirit instructs us to these things. You say, well, he's winning quite a few battles. Well, the war is already over. These are temporary skirmishes in light of the divine reality that the eternal war has been won. Verse 12, he goes on to say, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what has come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Our divine advocate is our divine indwelling tutor who takes the word of God as I prayed earlier and applies it to all matters pertaining to life and to godliness. Now go over with me and look at what Paul has to say in Romans 8 that many of you are familiar with in relationship to this Holy Spirit that has come that the Lord Jesus promised would come. And let's remind our hearts this morning, for most of us, for some of us, will be refreshing new information for you in relationship to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually. And let's begin here in verse 18. For I consider, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 4, doesn't it? Great cross-reference in the margin of your Bible here. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. And you can cross-reference there 1 Thessalonians 5. If you're here in a Wednesday night study in the auditorium, this is Paul's discussion of our salvation from this earth, our removal from this place at the return of the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it in the same way. The Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Cherished words for the oppressed this morning. And he who searches the hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And I think you ought to write there Ecclesiastes 3.15 next to that verse. The omniscient understanding of our eternal Lord as to those who do righteous and as to those who do wickedness. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God so that we might know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The plain reading of this passage teaches us three simple profound truths among others. Divinity indwells you. When you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God who was sent from heaven, in Acts chapter 2, when the Lord Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes. At your conversion, he indwells you. Divinity is within you. The Word of God clearly here sustains you because the Spirit of God's divine responsibility, if you will, is to ensure that the Word of God means something to you every day. And what we mean by means something to you is that you might understand it so that you might live what it says in your thinking, in your speaking, and in your acting. We talk about living spirit-governed, word-saturated lives. That's what the, the, the ministry of the Spirit of God allows us to do. The Apostle Paul here is writing to a church. Certainly there's personal individual application as per these words to the listener, but he's writing to an assembly. The assumption is here that, that just as you are seated here this morning hearing from God's word, the Romans were hearing this letter together as a family. And the reminder here is the oppressor may love to be alone and he might love to oppress you in aloneness. But God never intended you to live life alone. He's given you a family. He's given you a family to enjoy. With my whole heart, I just humbly ask you as your pastor that you would pray for me to apply these truths. As, you know, all of us live as oppressed people. And that you would pray for me that... I would be able to attach myself to appropriate people here to help me walk through oppression. But then I would ask you to do the same. Let's not go through this alone. And let's remind ourselves of texts like these, among others, from the psalmist to a gospel writer to a letter writer. And may we think on these things often, together, as we wrestle ourselves to joy and to perseverance as God's children. Gibson, in his commentary, has said this, people fill their thoughts and plans with themselves as they constantly 
work out how to navigate the world in a way that will give meaning and happiness. And says the preacher, that is the very source of our pain. It's we, not I. It's we, not me. In America, we often talk about rugged, rugged individualism. In America, we also often talk about, you know, pick yourself up. Don't give up. Make it work. While all those things might in and of themselves be temporary helps, they're not long-standing helps. For an oppressed life is a life that's lived alone. You say, well, pastor, I'm just not good with people. Well, my friends, quite frankly, you probably learned that from your folks. Or maybe you learned that because you're an oppressed person. And your oppressor has achieved his, his or her goal to force you into aloneness to force you into a reality where you're no longer good with people or want to be good with people, I would tell you that that's not a divine reality. Aloneness is not a biblical reality. That is to be embraced for long periods of time. The Lord Jesus Christ, even in Matthew chapter 26, hours before his arrest and crucifixion, he goes to the garden to pray, remember? And who does he go with? He goes with the 12. And even when he's about to depart from them, he takes three over to where he's going to pray. Even the Lord Jesus, in sinless perfection, full humanity, when he's about to be the most oppressed soul in human existence knows it's not good for him to be alone. Will you come and pray with me? Will you stay awake to pray with me as I pray? Lord Jesus gives us a good example. We're longing for comfort where there seems to be no comfort, and yet we understand the comforter has come to give us just that. So the conclusion, as we close this morning for this first point, where there seems to be no comfort because of constant oppression, think of the constancy of oppression and how it consumes us. And then think of how much we need to arm our minds more consistently, or can I say as consistently, at least, with the Word of God and Christian companionship to counter the saturating influence of oppression. How important is this? How important is 
sitting in the lobby and praying and studying God's word with a Christian brother or sister. How important are fellowships like we have scheduled tonight? For the Christian, these aren't mere social gatherings. These are spiritual necessities. Because we've got to replace the saturation of oppression with the ministry of the Spirit in us and then through us. That's how we survive. Amen. My friends, it's much more than survival. For perseverance is much more than survival. If you consider again the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3, back in Ecclesiastes, where we concluded last week, I have seen that nothing is better than that men should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. Wrestling ourselves to joy. Verse 12 of chapter 3, I know that there is nothing better for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Do you remember that? Back to the end of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing better, verse 24, than for a man to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And I would say, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Who can live this life without him and without those in whom he dwells? Don't be alone because you choose to. Right? Overcome oppression with the Lord, with his word, and with his people. And you'll actually find your way to joy. Because as I said, it's not just survival. It's perseverance. And that's all by grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Help us, Lord, to continually entrust ourselves to you as our faithful creator while we continue to do good things as 1 Peter 4.19 instructs us. Help me to do that. I'm certainly, Lord, way, way not where I should be uh, in this regard. Uh, help my spiritual infancy personally as I seek to teach these truths to these sweet people, your people. And then, Lord, help us help each other. In Christ's name, amen.